Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The nation's capital has a population of nearly 700,000 people and has no voting representation in Congress because it's not a state. But efforts to change this are heating up. And so I've invited Bo Schuff, the executive director of D.C. Vote, on the show to discuss. President Obama says he will attach the D.C. taxation without representation license plate to the all of the presidential limos. Today, House Democrats voted to admit Washington, D.C. as the 51st state, despite some truly dumb objections from Republicans who have spent the week freaking out about everything from D.C. statehood to voting rights to the Green New Deal. Statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico would be in some way socialistic, according to Mitch McConnell. What are Democrats in Washington there on the Hill saying about why they held that vote today? Well, they say it's about fairness and democracy and representation for the 700,000 residents of the District of Columbia. Hi, I'm Bo Schuff, the executive director of D.C. Vote. I advocate for equality for the District of Columbia through D.C. statehood and to mess up your flag. Sorry, not sorry. Bo, thank you so much for being a part of Sorry Not Sorry. I want to start at the very beginning. Let's start with the Constitution. What does it say about establishing a capital? That really is starting at the very beginning, all the way back. It says that we have to establish a capital no larger than 10 miles square. And that's a really important part of the clause because it doesn't say how small it can be. But it does require that there be a federal district that belongs to all Americans where we can all come and redress grievances and do all of the patriotic things we do here. And what about the process of adding a new state to the union? Also clearly laid out in the Constitution, it is solely the purview of Congress to admit new states into the union. They've done it 37 times so far, in fact. So obviously we're talking about this because there is a lot of talk around making D.C. a state. So I would like for you to tell us a bit about why that's important, who lives there, how many people... There are 700,000 people that live here in the District of Columbia. And for comparison's sake, we are larger than Wyoming and Vermont. And we're gaining on Alaska. We are the smallest landmass state will be larger than the largest landmass state once we become admitted as far as population goes. The folks that live here are just like folks who live all over the country. We have firefighters and teachers and lawyers and bankers and everything. We have the oldest continuously operating fish market full of fishermen. And so we really do have a very diverse economy. Our tech sector and our hospitality sectors are both growing and replacing government as one of the largest employers. We are everyday people doing everyday lives. And the only difference is we don't have representation in Congress. Members of the House of Representatives each represent between 500,000 and a million Americans. D.C. 700,000 residents are represented by this woman, Eleanor Holmes Norton. But she couldn't vote on the statehood bill because she's different from other members. She can speak on the floor and introduce bills, but she can't actually vote. We have no voice or vote at all in the United States Senate. And Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton in the House has no ability to cast votes on final passage. Sometimes she can cast votes in committee, sometimes not, depending on who controls the committees at the time. But beyond that, 
Congress can also go one step further, and they can actually overrule our laws, our local spending, even our local tax dollars. What we decide to spend that money on can be overruled at any time by Congress. They've taken it so far from blocking us from implementing a needle exchange program during the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic to telling us we couldn't count the ballots during a ballot initiative. So they mess with us every day that they can find a way to do it. And the only thing that ends that is making D.C. a state. It's the only thing that can make it us fully. So just to be clear, those almost 700,000 residents of D.C. have no voting representation in Congress. Is that right? That's correct. Do they still pay taxes? Oh, we sure do. We absolutely pay taxes. We pay the same federal personal income taxes and corporate income taxes that everyone else does across the country. Collectively, in fact, we pay more total in taxes than 22 states do, even though we would be the 48th largest state if once we're admitted. So we pay our fair share. And last time I checked, going all the way back to the beginning again, we fought a relatively big war over this concept of taxation without representation. And I don't always trust history books, but I think we won. And I'm pretty sure that this is now the only spot left where taxation without representation exists in the states. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to like break down. And I think because you're in the thick of this every day, you might have to make people understand a little bit more because, of course, like every issue that we face as a nation, this has become a very partisan issue. Tell my listeners why this is not a partisan political issue. The movement for D.C. statehood is 220 years old. The movement for D.C. statehood is literally older than either the Democratic or the Republican Party. And so the idea that it would have some drastic impact on one party or the other is coincidental, not causational. It may or may not, depending on what we choose to do with our elections. It's not partisan because if you look at the history of state admissions, look at Alaska, for example, the 50th state, the one that came in the most recently. Forever, it was going to only be Democratic. It was going to be a Democratic stronghold. It was going to vote blue forever. Mm, Not so much. Hawaii, 49. Same scenario, other direction. It was going to be Republican. Massive military installations, big bases, big money, going to be Republican. Mm, Not so much. District of Columbia itself has elected Green Party, Independent Party, Republicans to district level offices. And so there's no reason that if the right candidate with the right message and the right campaign came to the district or lived in the district and decided to run on their own, couldn't win those seats. But more importantly, You don't get to tell us we don't get representation because you don't like what we'll do with it. That's not how this works. Illinois doesn't get to tell Alabama that, no, no, you don't get senators anymore because you always elect Republicans. That's not how we do things in the United States. Elections have consequences, and we know that. And that's all we want is the right to have an election and put our voices forward and be represented. So give us a rundown, really, of the efforts to make D.C. a state. Is this a new effort? Does it have a long history? You touched on the history of it a little bit. Let's go into it with a little bit more detail. In 1801 is when this whole thing started, when the Congress actually decided to implement the Organic Act and create the District of Columbia and take away our representation. The District of Columbia Organic Act of 1871 is an act of Congress that repealed the individual charters of the cities of Washington and Georgetown and established a new territorial government for the whole District of Columbia. Though Congress repealed the territorial government in 1874, the legislation was the first to create a single municipal government for the federal district. Folks who lived here in the land that is now the district at one point were represented in either Maryland or Virginia. But with the Organic Act, they lost that representation and they forever since have not had it. Over the years, there have been different efforts. There was an effort in the 90s, for example, to give Representative Norton a vote in the House of Representatives, but still not give a Senate. And that vote would have been an exchange for a brand new seat in Utah. So in order for us to get equality, Utah had to bonus. 
there's been an effort for a constitutional amendment, not for statehood, but for representation. The constitutional amendment would have given us two senators and it would have given us one representative, no matter what. No matter if we had a million and a half people, three million people, whatever it was, we would only ever have one representative. So even the constitutional amendment wasn't about equality. And most importantly, the language within the constitutional amendment specifically said D.C. would not be a state. That becomes really important when you look at the 10th Amendment, which reserves all powers to the states, but the federal government isn't enumerated. So now you would have two amendments in conflict with each other, and pretty much any decision the district wanted to make would end up in the Supreme Court, because does the 10th Amendment rule or does the new amendment that created D.C.'s representation rule? And so the effort has been ongoing, but it has been sort of in fits and starts and never really fully encompassing the idea of statehood. That goes back about 20, 30 years when Representative Norton came to office. And the most recent push for statehood goes back about five years to 2016, when we as district residents went to the ballot and voted in favor of statehood by a margin of 86%. So that made a really clear delineation between all of the other ideas that would get us a piece or a part of statehood and the real solution, which is D.C. statehood. I need to hear what the arguments against giving D.C. statehood are. What are they? There are the silly ones, like we don't have a car dealership. We don't have a bowling alley. We don't have a landfill. Come on. We don't have loggers. These are things brought up under oath in the Congress and by senators and by representatives. So I mention them because you don't know if they're serious or not when it comes under oath. But it shows you how ridiculous all of the arguments are. There are no serious ones, which is why they spend the time on the ridiculousness. The semi-intellectual arguments in opposition, one is the constitutionality, which I sort of hinted at at the very beginning of the conversation. We know that it's constitutional. At one point, there was a proposal to make the entirety of the district the state, and that wouldn't be constitutional. RFK authored a very famous memo in 1964 saying it would not be constitutional, and he was right. Because taking the entire district and making it a state goes against that establishment clause that we talked about earlier, because there has to be a federal district. And right now, our proposal on the bill that's before the House and the Senate preserves a federal district. It's a little bit smaller. If you look at the map of D.C., it used to be a perfect diamond, and now it's a diamond with a chunk missing. Well, that's because we gave the chunk back. We went to Virginia so that Virginia could maintain slavery. So we can change the size of the district. That's already been established. We want to change it one more time and preserve the postcard zone is what I call it what would stay as the federal district and where everybody knows, the White House, the Library of Congress, the Capitol building, all the monuments, that would stay as a federal district to comply with the Constitution. So that's why I said it's a semi-intellectual argument against it. There are some folks who argue that we can just take land and give it back to Maryland. They call it retrocession, except that it's no retro there. D.C. was part of Maryland longer ago than Texas was part of Mexico or Louisiana was part of France, right? Like the idea that we're just going to go back to a different land is insulting more than anything else. And so that's not a workable solution either. D.C. residents don't want it. B, Maryland residents don't want it. And C, nobody who's really engaged has any interest in that one. So that's the other argument that you hear quite a bit in opposition. I jokingly, in the opening, I talked about messing up the flag. Some people are a little concerned about what 51 stars will look like. And then there's the political argument that you brought up, that it's a partisan power. They're on the way to doing some additional things, in addition to the ones they've already done, uh, the Green New Deal, Uh, Medicare for all. And by the way, 
you may have mentioned this on your show, but they had planned, uh, planned to, uh, to make the District of Columbia a state that given two new Democratic senators, uh, Puerto Rico a state given two more new Democratic senators. And as a former Supreme Court clerk yourself, you've surely noticed that they plan to expand the Supreme Court. So this is a full uh, bore socialism. So those are sort of the arguments against, but they don't carry much weight when you examine them against U.S. history. Yeah, because I feel like Republicans are opposing statehood because they're afraid they're going to lose power in the government. And I'm afraid also because the Senate is so close that because we seem like we're pushing for this now, it becomes political optics. To some extent, that's right. But if you look throughout history at who controlled the Senate at any given point, it's a very small number of months, actually, not even quite years, where two additional, even if you assume they're going to be Democratic from D.C., two additional Democratic senators would change the balance of power. That's a scare tactic. Even right now, two additional Democratic senators don't change the balance of power. The Democrats control the U.S. Senate. And like I said, our elections are open to anybody to enter. And if you have the right candidate and the right message, you might be able to win no matter which party you're from. We've elected people from both parties before. I think it was Susan Collins recently suggested to make D.C. part of Maryland instead of granting statehood. Tell me what your feelings are on that idea. Yeah, that's the idea that's called retrocession that I was getting at just a little bit. Retrocession is problematic because it goes against the American fundamental values of self-governance. The consent of the governed is one of the most important things of our democracy, and it's one of the things that sets us apart across the world. And so if the people who are going to be governed, Washington residents and Maryland residents, don't think that that's how the representation should go, that's not how it should go. And D.C. spoke 86 percent in favor. Polling in Maryland shows most of Maryland is opposed. So they don't have the consent of the governed for this idea. It's legally a harder thing to do. You have to get an act of Congress and an act of the Maryland legislature. And then you have to figure out how to stitch all the laws together. Is it their speeding laws or our speeding laws that are going to rule the day, right? If you cross the line, does it suddenly change? And that's obviously a pithy example. But all of our laws, our tax laws, our marriage laws, all of them would have to be blended in some form between the two entities. And who wins that argument? Is it Maryland because they're larger? Or is it DC because we've had those laws for 200 and some odd years, depending on which ones you're talking about? All of those pieces are far more challenging than the idea that 700,000 people have determined for themselves what sort of government they would like to live under, and that that determination complies with the greater government of the United States. What would you say to senators who are working against this? I don't know. I don't understand the arguments against. The arguments against are based on power and racism, and that's all there is to it. The District of Columbia is a majority district of color. We have a plurality, a significant plurality of African-American residents. We would actually be the blackest state in the country when we enter the union. And when you combine the black population with the Latino population and the Asian-American, we are a majority person of color state. We are governed by a majority white body, the United States Congress. It is a living, walking, breathing example of white supremacy. And so there is a fair bit of opposition based on that, that structures of white supremacy are being supported by individuals across this country. There are absolutely power concerns that Republicans don't want two more urban representing senators, regardless of what party they end up. There is a significant rural urban divide in the country, and the D.C. senators would represent urban interests. And so that power is at play as well. But none of this, none of their arguments, none of the opposition is based on American values of one person, one vote. And that's why I don't understand it. 
That's why I can't get to it. I don't understand gerrymandering. I don't understand the idea of blocking people. I've been trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed for the last three years. That's another one. I don't understand the arguments against it. The incredibly novel concept that women are equal. Crazy. Yeah, Crazy. I know. It's really out there. That's so progressive. I get accused now and again of being a radical. And I'm just like, if I actually put forth radical ideas, call me a radical. But I feel like they're relatively normal. And the public supports it. Statehood is at 54%. So this should be a no-brainer. Speaking of the public supporting it, I would love for you to just talk to why people outside of Washington advocate for D.C. statehood. Americans believe in representation. It's one of our fundamental values. Not to sound completely cliche, but until all of us are represented, none of us actually are. Because if all of our voices aren't weighted and heard equally, everybody else's voice is tweaked and modified somehow. I come out of the LGBT marriage movement, and I used to ask straight people who work on behalf of marriage all the time, why do you support it? Well, because they're empathetic, because they can understand equality, and they can understand that everybody should be on the same page. And those same arguments come to statehood. The idea that us gaining statehood takes away from yours somehow is nonsensical. Increasing representation to include everyone is what we should all be seeking. And that's where we do draw parallels with things like redistricting and, and gerrymandering, is that everyone's voice should be weighted equally and included equally and counted equally. Let me ask you this. Do you think that D.C. not being a state impacted the response to the January 6th attacks? Oh, absolutely. Calls for statehood grew stronger after the security failures during the Capitol riot in January. The D.C. Police Department said it sent approximately 850 officers, nearly one quarter of its force, to defend the halls of Congress. I'm upset that 706,000 residents of the District of Columbia did not have a single vote in that Congress yesterday, despite the fact that our people were putting their lives on the line to protect our democracy. We saw it back in June when the former president cleared Lafayette Square because he wanted to hold up a Bible upside down in front of a church for a photo op. And we sort of dismissed it at that point of being really disturbing and problematic, but not terrifying to the strength of our democracy. And that was a mistake. Because on January 6th, we saw how it could be terrifying to the strength of our democracy. D.C. is the only jurisdiction where the executive, in this case, Mayor Muriel Bowser, cannot control the National Guard. In every other state, the governor has control directly. They don't have to call anybody or borrow anybody. They just do it. And so when emergencies arise, whether that's a flood or a crowd or a mobbed insurrection, the governor is, has that at their disposal. In D.C., that's not true. The mayor did not have the ability to call in the National Guard. The mayor had to reach out to the president and ask the Pentagon to send in the National Guard to take care of the Capitol. And the president and the Pentagon delayed that action. The Virginia and Maryland National Guards arrived faster than the D.C. National Guard. The D.C. National Guard's headquarters is literally 16 blocks due east of the Capitol, literally. It was the Metropolitan Police Department on the request of Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer and the Capitol Police that actually were able to secure the Capitol. It wasn't even any of the National Guard troops that came in. It was in conjunction. But it wasn't until Metropolitan Police Department arrived that that building got back under control and Congress's business could resume. We go all the way back again to 1783 and why this all happened was what's called the Mutiny of Philadelphia. At that time, an unruly mob laid siege to the building that the Congress was in to get paid for the Revolutionary War. Hamilton told a big old lie. That's a long story, blah, 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 blah. But that's why 
the district exists as it does because Hamilton was able to convince Congress that Congress had to protect itself at all times. If I ever meet Lin-Manuel Miranda, we're going to have words about the fact that this was left out of the the musical. (laughs) They created the district to protect the Capitol so that no unruly mob could ever again lay siege to the Capitol building and delay the work of Congress. That didn't work. Your 200-year-old theory has just been proven a failure. So now it's time to do something different. You mentioned Mayor Bowser, and she was recently admitted to the Democratic Governors Association. Do you think that this is going to help move statehood efforts forward? Yeah, I think anytime that you can talk about the unfair, any of the differences, any conversation about that moves the needle forward. It's why we've seen a gain of 20 points in support of statehood over the last four years. But absolutely, the district operates already as a state, county, and city all at the same time. So anytime somebody tells me we have a city, makes me a little nuts because we have a state board of education. We do state board of transportation. We do everything that a state does and a county does and a city does. So it just makes sense that she's part of the DGA. Our attorney general is part of the Democratic Attorney General's Association as well. And our district council are members of the NCSL, National Council of State Legislatures. So it makes sense to elevate all of those offices, whether it's RGA or DGA, depending on who holds office, because we are a state and she acts as a governor, with the exception, obviously, of the national government. Who are the proponents of statehood in Congress and where is statehood in the legislative process? So it recently passed the House of Representatives. So there are 216 advocates for statehood in the House. We won 216 to 206 in that one. Obviously, the largest champion of statehood in the House of Representatives is Eleanor Holmes Norton, our delegate. Representative Jamie Raskin from Maryland, obviously, is a huge supporter as well. There's a number of them. Former Representative Deb Haaland, now Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison. There's a number of folks who have advocated loudly for statehood in the House. On the Senate, we stand at 44 co-sponsors and one original sponsor for a total of 45 all of them from the Democratic caucus. Senator Carper is the lead on the bill, and Senator Van Hollen of Maryland is one of the biggest champions over on the Senate side. And we expect at some point here, relatively soon, to have a hearing in the Senate Homeland Security Committee on the bill, which will be the first hearing in about five years. And I uh, arise this afternoon, along with several of our colleagues, to discuss the need to end the policy of taxation without representation, which millions of Americans in the District of Columbia have endured over for over 200 years, and hundreds of thousands still endure today. Uh, This policy was wrong in 1776, when 13 colonies took on the mightiest nation on Earth to end it. It is wrong today. Wow. So the time is now. Absolutely. Yeah, there is no reason to wait anymore. Tell us about DC Vote and how my listeners can support the work. DC Vote is one of the longest established DC statehood organizations. We've been in existence for 23 years. You can head to our website, it's the most obvious, dcvote.org. You can follow us on Twitter at DC underscore vote. If you forget these, just go to the website and there's links to do all that. But we actually need folks outside of DC almost more than we need the folks in DC to get involved. DC residents are fired up and they're showing up. And we need people from across the country to take that next step. As I said, we don't have senators and we don't have a representative that can vote. So to pass any of this legislation and to educate people about it, we need to lean on people outside of the district. 
So go to our website. There's tools you can use to talk to your friends and family. There's sample tweets and sample posts for Facebook that you can start a conversation with anybody you know and get them involved in this effort because it is going to take folks from outside this area working on our behalf. Are you hopeful? And then my final question is, what gives you that hope? I am cautiously optimistic. What gives me that hope is where we have come in the last four years. One example I can give, when we first passed the ballot initiative and really focused on statehood, we developed a sign-on letter to Congress where we could get organizations to join our efforts and support it. And we struggled to get to 51 organizations. 51 is kind of a big thing around here. It's one of our favorite numbers. So we pushed to get to there, and it was a struggle to get 51 organizations signed on. Just before the recent House vote, we submitted another letter, and it had 207 organizations on it, including some of the largest political organizations in the country. We see public support going from 34 to 54% in the last five years. We have seen our co-sponsor list. We like almost set off fireworks when we got to 100 co-sponsors the first time. We've now passed the bill through the House for the first time and the second time in history. It hasn't happened in 200 years. We set a goal last year of 40 co-sponsors, and we hit 42. We're now at 45 in the Senate. And so the trajectory is our direction. I grew up in Orange County, California, and spent a fair bit of time at the beach. And I have often said, you can have a really great surfer, but if you don't have the waves and the atmosphere and the wind all at the right moment, all at the right time, you're not going to make it to the end. And I feel like we are at a point where those things can align. There's a lot of work still to do. There's a lot of effort we need to push forth. Stuff like this is super helpful, but I think we've got the best shot at it we've ever had. Well, you give me hope, Bo. And please call on me if I could be of service to you and DC Vote. I really appreciate you being a part of the podcast and sharing your expertise with my listeners. Thank you so much for having us. I now yield five minutes to the gentle lady from the District of Columbia, the author of this bill and moment in history, the great Eleanor Holmes Norton. Five minutes. Gentlewoman is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank my good friend, the gentle lady, for her leadership on this D.C. statehood bill. Congress has both the moral obligation and the constitutional authority to pass H.R. 51. This country was founded on the principles of no taxation without representation and consent of the governed. But D.C. residents are taxed without representation and cannot consent to the laws under which they, as American citizens, must live. Okay, make no mistake, the Republican Party opposes statehood for D.C. solely because they fear giving equal representation to the residents of the nation's capital will be a political nightmare for them. Their entire argument rests on keeping nearly a million people, a million mostly black and brown people, out of the national political dialogue because they fear it will hurt their majorities. Heaven forbid they change their policies to better reflect the will and needs of these people. Why do that when you could just ignore them? That's what D.C. statehood is about. It's about telling the government they can't simply ignore hundreds of thousands of residents in the shadow of the Capitol building. It's that simple. If Congress truly holds to the self-evident ideal that all people are created equal, then it must allow those people to have equal representation in our government. I mean, what are they so afraid of? 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.